You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil. Today we're joined by Dr. Jessica Gray. She's a family medicine physician and addiction medicine specialist in the departments of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and pediatrics at the Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. She's also the associate program director for the MGH Addiction Medicine Fellowship, as well as a clinical director of the Hope Clinic at MGH. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gray. I want to thank you for being our guest today, and I really would like to get started by asking you to describe your background in the treatment of addictions. So, so my background is in family medicine, as you mentioned, and that training really gave me the expertise to care for individuals throughout the life cycle. And it, it taught me to consider the health of the family unit as central to an individual's health. And addiction medi- medicine is so compelling so compelling for me um, because I, of the work I get to do helping individuals and families along their intimate journey towards health and recovery. Um, additionally, as we can talk about, I'm passionate about the constant need to advocate for my patients in the face of uh, what feels like a really broken treatment system and deep social stigma. And so being able to work at the intersection of man- medicine and advocacy is what sustains me and what has driven me to a career in addiction medicine. Okay, and that provides a great backdrop for discussing this case. So in the latest issue of the journal, you presented this case report about a young woman with uh, multiple incarcerations and multiple hospitalizations uh, stemming from uh, her drug use. And I was wondering if you could explain the case and what specifically made the situation so unique. Yeah, so this is a woman, again, who I met uh, when I was doing my fellowship and her case was really striking in the sense that it brought together again, all the vulnerabilities of pregnancy and, um, and substance use disorder, as well as kind of the real need for advocacy. So she was a young woman who found out she was pregnant um, accidentally in an emergency room visit and really, you know, throughout her life had struggled with, with active opioid use disorder and really hadn't had any stable period. And as we know, things, diseases can get worse in pregnancy. And she really just had a, an incredibly tumultuous pregnancy, as you mentioned, involving hospitalizations, incarcerations, um, and, and chaos in the setting of homelessness as well. And the incarceration, thankfully, in Massachusetts, um, during, those, during that time, she was able to continue on her life-saving medication treatment of methadone um, because women, pregnant women are allowed to be on methadone in Massachusetts jails. Um, however, I think the, the piece that really was striking about this case was that because she had more of a jail sentence to finish after she delivered, um, the guidelines of that jail were that she would need to just abruptly come off of her treatment. And this just felt... Um, 
to our healthcare team as, as something that was incredibly detrimental to her, both as someone, you know, who is um, immediately postpartum and would be struggling with all of the um, components of, of postpartum stress that go along with, with having a baby. There's a high risk of postpartum depression, um, of, of mood disorders. Then there's the fact that she wouldn't even be with her, her baby postpartum because she was still incarcerated. Um, and when you add on that, the real risks of uh, forcibly detoxing someone off of medication for opioid use disorder um, and incarceration, um, we just knew that this would put this woman at, at increasingly high risk for overdose death and just uh, inability to be successful. And so um, it really took, you know, advocacy of the team and working with um, the jail and hospital leadership to identify that this is someone who is so incredibly high risk that taking away this treatment just, you know, made no medical sense and was bad for her and, and, and for her care. Now, did that require some formal process or did you, did it just involve informal conversations with the jail regarding the implementation of this postpartum treatment? Yeah. Um, I think as everything it, it, that, that kind of spontaneously happens in medicine, um, it, it didn't begin with, with any formal process because this was the first time that uh, something like this was successfully uh, came about. So it really took our team actually, you know, pretty much forcing the issue and essentially saying that medically, you know, this would have been a really dangerous discharge for a patient. And so we ended up holding the woman um, postpartum to ensure that we had a safe discharge plan in place that met, um, you know, standard of care um, for her in the postpartum period and with her opioid use disorder. And so I think having um, that leeway as um, a medical team and being able to work with, with the hospital who really, you know, does a tremendous job understanding substance use disorder um, was instrumental, as well as really building relationships with, with our local jail, um, which didn't happen overnight and, and took time and um, and energy to really help help them understand how important this was and and kind of easing some of the the risks around safety um, and diversion that I think a lot of houses of correction worry about. Great. And in in terms of outcomes, what were the outcomes you saw in this particular case as a result of providing this treatment? And also more generally, what kind of improved outcomes could we expect? if this were to become more the standard of care? Yeah, I mean, for her, um, on an individual level, it really felt like a win. I mean, it took um, it took away kind of that extra layer of, of risk and, and, and danger and harm to her to, to not have to be forcibly detoxed in the immediately postpartum period off of her methadone. Um, and she was therefore able to stay on it and, you know, have the brain space essentially, right, with, with this treatment on board to be able to start to rebuild her life and think about rebuilding her life. So for her, you know, it was one small step um, that, that we think is critical for her to be able to get her life back together. I mean, certainly she had a long, um, she had a long jail course after that. And so, um, and many obstacles to overcome in the setting of all the chaos that was going on in her life. But, you know, this, the, the medication treatment really pre- provided a foundation for her uh, to be able to do the rest of the work and not 
kind of be as deep in her in her addiction. Um, I think what was incredibly um, meaningful to us as as physicians and advocates was that the the work we put in on her case really um, you know spiraled into improved treatment for other women. So because of her case, other women um, actually were less afraid to deliver in jail. So even just a, you know, a few months later, I had another patient who was really terrified um, at that same jail, but knew that, you know, there was someone who was continued on their medicine and that it was going to be okay. And so I think both um, giving some type of reassurance to our, to those patients, but also the fact that they were able to, other people were able to continue their life-saving treatment behind bars was a pretty big step. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the landscape in, in Massachusetts, right? So within Massachusetts, there have been some landmark court cases since then that have pushed the criminal justice system um, to offer treatment with all three FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder behind bars. Um, and, you know, there will soon be a, a rollout pilot a program for that, but we're still not there yet. And I suppose that we could pivot a bit into discussing the work that you do currently and how that relates to this case. Yeah, I think the this concept that, that we brought up in this case, and I, I'm going to tie it into you know the work I'm currently doing, but this concept um, of forced with forced detox, right, um, is really it's never a good thing. And in pregnancy, you know, we know we know it's not safe for the fetus to have abrupt withdrawal. Um, but in the postpartum period, I think, you know, really it's not safe for mom or the dyad. You know, we have great evidence showing that detoxification is ineffective treatment for opioid use disorder because it's applying an acute treatment to a chronic disease. And, you know, just like in diabetes, you don't fix diabetic ketoacidosis and then stop all the medicine and treatment after once they've gotten out of the acute episode. And so, you know, we need to be offering treatment across the life course for patients with opioid use disorder. And I think it's really the wrong message to send to women um, that we only care about treating them when they are pregnant, right? And it gives this impression that uh, we only care about women when they're a vessel, right? When they're carrying a baby and not the actual woman herself. Um, and so it's, you know, it's this concept of, of pregnancy exceptionalism that, um, you know, we hold women when they're pregnant to this incredibly high standard um, and sometimes unrealistic standard. We know that opioid use disorder or any substance use disorder is really a, a chronic relapsing disease. And for many women, this moment of pregnancy is a moment where they're able to have increased motivation and, um, and, and do really well and enter long-term recovery. But I think for many other women, there's a lot of bumps along the road. And especially in someone like this case where she's facing a whole host of um, other challenges in terms of her mental health, um, her incarceration status, her lack of social supports, her homelessness, um, and incredible trauma history that really, I think, prevent her or any woman in the perinatal period from, from being successful without kind of robust treatment. And so, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do at, at the program where I am now is really figure out how to support women, not just in their pregnancy and then, you know, say goodbye, but really understand that, that 
we need to be taking care of, of women throughout the, their life course and throughout this vulnerable time. And we need to not just be taking care of them, but we also need to be taking care of, of their children and their families. Um, because without that stability, really, you know, a medicine itself is not going to be enough. Well, I think this case you presented was great for a variety of reasons. Just the efforts that you put in and the advocacy that paved the way for this treatment to be used and and perhaps making this treatment more likely to be available to other women in the same position. Um, just as, as you mentioned, there are new laws in Massachusetts, at least, that afford this type of treatment to women. So I really do thank you for the work that you do and for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much. It's really been a pleasure. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.